pediatric commuters, welcome back to the fourth episode. Thank you for all your constructive feedback. I was really pleased to see how popular the first three episodes have been. Our guest today is Dr. Lee Hudson, who is a consultant pediatrician at Great Ormond Street Hospital, working within the departments of general and adolescent pediatrics and mental health. Dr. Hudson's particular clinical interest is in medical aspects of psychological medicine, in particular eating disorders as well as general adolescent health. Today we will discuss about eating disorders in general, focusing more on anorexia nervosa. I have to mention that this podcast expresses the views of the host and guests and that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. One doctor may have a different way of doing things from another. Please double check your local and national guidelines before treating any patients with this condition. The podcast is not sponsored by any drug or device companies. Have a safe commute! Hello, good morning, welcome to the Pediatric Commuter. It's a really bright and sunny day in London, but quite cold. I'm at Great Ormond Street, joined by Dr. Lee Hudson, and I'm very pleased to be discussing about anorexia and other eating disorders. Welcome, Dr. Hudson. Hi. Right, let's start with what is anorexia? What are eating the eating disorders? Sure. So eating disorders are, are, you know, remember psychiatric conditions. The reason they're so relevant to paediatricians is, of course, that um, eating disorders have a significant impact on physical health. And we know that around half of people who die from anorexia nervosa, for example, will die of physical causes. And those physical causes are due to the consequence of starvation. We're seeing more and more of them um, nationally and in most high-income countries and paediatricians are being asked, um, finding themselves looking after patients with eating disorders with physical risk. So an eating disorder is exactly what it says on the packet. It's a psychiatric condition where there is a significant disorder in eating. Most of us in our lives at some point will have disordered eating because we are busy at work and don't eat properly or you know, we may have um, a low mood or, or something bad might happen to us in our life like grief where eating is affected. However to separate it from those from disordered eating disorders a separate category of mental health diagnoses and broadly there are two types so anorexia nervosa and the thing that separates anorexia nervosa characteristically is a real pervasive obsession with weight and shape concerns even in the context of being extremely underweight children and young people and adults with anorexia nervosa will be obsessed with being underweight and that can of course have profound impacts on physical health within anorexia nervosa there are different categorizations so um, atypical anorexia nervosa was introduced because originally anorexia nervosa was defined by underweight and absence of periods in girls but of course that rules out half the population because males get anorexia too and um, also you can start off at a relatively healthy weight or be very young and not have the typical cognitions that one would have around anorexia nervosa but still have anorexia nervosa because you're younger. So a typical anorexia nervosa is where you don't fit the classical findings which are basically of compensatory behaviours to try and lose weight so starving, restricting and, and exercise and vomiting. The other um, category of eating disorders which sometimes get neglected and actually we're not going to talk about today because we're, we're going to focus on the, the physical risk around eating disorders is bulimia nervosa. People with bulimia tend to be over weight or healthy weight but um, still have quite significant physical health issues for, for example through vomiting and psychological morbidity so this shouldn't be ignored but I think we're going to focus mostly on anorexia nervosa today. How often do we see anorexia or other eating disorders in paediatrics? We've only really recently begun to understand what the epidemiology of eating disorders are in children. People will sometimes ask have we 
Are we seeing more eating disorders? Are eating disorders becoming more common? I think what we have seen, certainly in my time since I qualified, uh, just around the year 2000, what we have seen is a shift in the kind of illnesses that children and young people have. And if you probably compare what I was looking after when I was an SHO in A&E in 2001 versus what people see in A&E, there are some um, similarities. But there's definitely been a shift towards more chronic illnesses and there's definitely been a shift towards mental health disorders. We don't really understand any of that. However, what it probably means is we've been successful. So vaccination has done a really good job of reducing the epidemiology of the infectious diseases that we would have seen 40, 50 or even 20 years ago. Um, and they've been replaced with other conditions that we will often see in general paediatrics around mental health. Also, we know that because we've been quite good at research and practice into chronic illnesses, things like cystic fibrosis and diabetes. So the treatments for those conditions have improved. What we're seeing is more people surviving, which is excellent, but as a consequence of living with a chronic condition, we know that your risk of mental health is greater. And for example, we know that you're twice as likely to have an eating disorder if you have type 1 diabetes. That's very interesting. What age are the patients when, when you see them or when primary care picks these kids up? And are they more likely to be boys or girls? Sure, it's a good question. So. From the data, we know that the peak onset of anorexia nervosa is between the ages of 15 and 19, at which time it's actually 10 times as common as inflammatory bowel disease and five times more common than the incidence of diabetes mellitus type 1. Of course, paediatricians and people working in primary care won't see all of those patients because some of them may just go to a um, to a mental health service. But we we are we have now mapped the number of children who present with early onset eating disorders. Now that's a bit arbitrarily labelled as under 13, and the patterns are the same in um, studies in Canada, in Australia, and the UK. So the instance there is about three per hundred thousand, and that's more common than meningococcal disease under 13 now. About half of them will go to paediatricians when they first present. The other half. Will go to mental health services and the particular characteristic of younger children with eating disorders and they can be as young as six and seven are that they don't have the cognitive ability to think and behave in the way that you might see with someone with anorexia who may be 15 or 16 so it may be that they just stop eating and, and find it more difficult to explain why it is that they're not eating for that reason sometimes an eating disorder gets missed off the differential diagnosis list to answer your question about the differences between the sexes we know that the younger you are the more equal it is so if you look at six and seven year olds, it's more likely to be 50-50. As you get progressively older, towards 15, 16, sort of later adolescence onset, there is definitely more females with anorexia nervosa. But overall, across the board, around 20% of young people and adults with eating disorders will be male. What should raise the suspicion of an eating disorder? If we are a pediatrician or a GP and we have a child that presents without this concern, what should raise the suspicion? this child having an eating disorder? One of the problems I think with working with mental health disorders when you're a paediatrician is confidence. And sometimes, a bit like safeguarding, it's one of the things that perhaps we don't necessarily have the confidence to be able to bring it up. I'm fairly sure that many people when they've been under a paediatric team will have thought at least that this might be an eating disorder but yet knowledge skill and confidence to be able to say that and a whole host of different reasons why that might be the case because you want to make sure that there isn't a underlying organic medical cause for this presentation not wanting to upset families and perhaps our own fear and our own thoughts about mental health disorders too which contributes very much to the way the professionals deal with mental health disorders so that the initial barrier I think is actually thinking about it or putting it on the list in the first place. Of course it's really important to exclude a 
another medical cause. So if someone presents with weight loss because they've got inflammatory bowel disease, because they've got hyperthyroidism, they may have a brain tumour, there are a number of conditions. However, if you've got a patient that's relatively asymptomatic and is losing weight, then it is up there on the leaderboard now epidemiologically for why you would have an eating disorder. And of course, what paediatricians are good at is taking histories and relying on the history to provide a diagnosis. And we would very readily do that about a baby that came through the door fairly to thrive. We'd be concentrating on how much the baby's feeding, what the mum's mental health is like, and really we just need to be doing the same things with these children. So if you've got a child or a young person where it's a bit perplexing why why it is that they're losing weight um, and they're asymptomatic, then it should be up there on the differential diagnosis list. How do we assess the risk for the patients that are referred to us as possible anorexia? When should we get worried? Because children will present with some weight loss or not eating as much or exercising more. Do we have a tool that we can use to assess what sort of area of risk these children are? Yeah, so there's readily available support. So the one that was actually designed and created as a multidisciplinary project is um, Junior Marzipan. I don't know if you can perhaps provide a link to this at some yes, point. Yes, I will, I will link it in the description box like I always do with all sorts of information that we get in the podcast. I actually learned about this, about Junior Marzipan in New York Hospital, which is amazing. I need to give them a shout out for using Junior Marzipan for every child that is admitted on the ward with queries regarding um, anorexia. So yeah, let's let's tell our listeners more about Junior Marzipan. So Junior Marzipan has been around since 2012. It was commissioned by the Royal College of Psychiatrists and is endorsed by the Royal College of Physicians and is also cited by the NICE guidelines that were published last year for eating disorders in children and adults. There, just to differentiate it, there is an adult marzipan, but there's a junior marzipan that was um, came after that that was written by paediatricians, child and adolescent psychiatrists, GPs, nurses and dietitians. So a range of professionals. And the whole point of marzipan was to provide a framework with some back detail as well onto how you should um, think about risk. And risk is split into into codes, into um, grades, so sort of green, amber, red. And it's in a number of domains. Now, it was deliberately sort of separated so that we would have both mental health and physical health categories. We didn't want to split that in the document, so it was done together. But there is a framework for risk that's available in the document and from the Royal College of Psychiatrists websites where you can pretty much tick off. And they look at the domains, particularly cardiovascular risk. So heart rate, ECG, blood pressure, temperature. So all of those are then categorised to tell you the risk cutoffs. And of course, one of the important ones is weight um, and what we call weight for height, or your, which we use BMI, to stratify risk. Junior Marzipan's been quite successful. So a lot of paediatricians around the country now are using Marzipan as a, as a, a risk tool, as are child and adolescent mental health services, which is great because it was designed for both groups. We also know that across the UK, through England and Wales in particular, there has been development of new specialist eating disorder services within communities with um, straight pathways to where you should go if you are, um, if someone wants to refer you because you're concerned you have an eating disorder. And the marzipan guidelines have been used within, embedded within those teams, of which there are now many paediatricians that work with those teams. Easily accessible, um, and it looks for the key features. And they're the key features that we 
if we're honest, we don't really know what it is that kills people with eating disorders. We know that people, when they starve from not just from with eating disorders, from lots of conditions and from documentation in history when there have been key points of starvation, that the cardiovascular system is the one that gets hit the hardest. And we know what tends to happen is you become bradycardic, you also tend to get low blood pressure. And the bradycardia is thought to be due to parasympathetic increased activity to slow the heart rate down. It's probably compensatory, so it's really most likely a proxy for just how underweight you are. And typically, you will find an ECG that has a slow heart rate. It's really important to look at the ECG because of course the differential diagnosis for bradycardia includes heart block. So it's important to look on the ECG and make sure that the a child or young person is in sinus rhythm and what you will typically find in anorexia is a very slow heart rate which is particularly worse when they go to sleep. There is a thing out there that the most common ECG finding in um, anorexia nervosa is um, dipped T waves or inverted T waves because of hypokalemia. Just a reminder that very often, particularly in children and younger children, the potassium is totally normal. So when people are looking on ECGs and checking blood tests, they can be very reassured by a normal potassium and a normal ECG from that perspective. But please don't forget the bradycardia because that's a sign of how significantly underweight children and young people can be. When we published a study in 2013, um, which was published in, arch in archives, we did a survey of, of registrars in inpatient units in England and Wales, and we asked them about the kind of physical findings they would look for in someone who was critically underweight. And the results were showed that less than half of, of registrars knew that you should look for a cardiovascular finding. So that's not a criticism, because I think if we're honest, anorexia nervosa and the understanding around risk of anore anorexia nervosa has not been classically taught at medical school. But that's changing in terms of college exams and membership exams. But the critical thing is to make sure that, that we look for those cardiovascular findings. It also includes hypotension, particularly postural hypotension. The reason for that is that once you've used all your fat up and you're starved, you end up having a, a slim heart because you basically use um, protein for metabolism. And a thin heart, a small heart, which is can sometimes be evident on x-rays, will, will find its function as a pump reduced. Children with anorexia or eating disorders usually have a they're really cold, their extremities are really mm. cold. <clears throat> this is part of the sort of cardiovascular yeah. findings. Yeah. It's quite important for us to look for yeah. this as Frequently well. Frequently you have shut down hands and actually it can be quite confusing because if someone comes into an A&E department and they've got shut down, shut down hands, then you obviously worry about shock and, and sepsis. And of course you should always think about um, sepsis in that setting but they frequently will be bradycardic rather than tachycardic when they arrive and the, the, there'll be a history of, of weight loss being long-standing. The other reason that um, people with eating disorders tend to be um, have low temperatures is because they lose all their fat, their fat, their body fat and when you have low body fat you tend, you, you're not able to hold temperature as well and you will find in pe particularly um, children and young people who have eating disorders that are chronic they will have developed lanugo hair on their back and on their front of and on their arms as a compensatory mechanism to, to retain heat. That is extremely interesting. In terms of dehydration and edema, I think these are other two features that we have to yep. be aware of. Are they caused by not not eating or eating the wrong mm. things? It's difficult to say. I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is that despite teaching and despite um, textbooks, we all know that 
clinical assessment of dehydration in a child or a young person is notoriously difficult. And we know it's also more difficult when someone's malnourished, and we know that from, from evidence from the developing world about, about that. Sometimes people with eating disorders will be dehydrated. It can be difficult to establish how dehydrated they are because their skin may be in bad condition. As we talked about before, they may be cold and have cold peripheries because they've been chronically malnourished. People too do tend to get dehydrated. But the important thing is to recognise they have quite small hearts if they're very underweight. So repeated fluid, bol fluid bolus is likely not helpful. And most of the dehydration is chronic. So it's important that um, rehydration does happen, but you can do that safely in most cases with all rehydration solution. In my experience, children and young people with eating disorders don't mind drinking fluids. It's more the energy that they're concerned about. But absolutely, in terms of the initial management of someone with an eating disorder, when you're acutely trying to manage them, establishing correct fluids is important as a first step. Electrolytes usually, in my experience, are normal. So potassium will usually be normal, sodium will, norm will usually be normal. They sometimes can have a slightly raised urea and, and a raised sodium because they are dehydrated. But again, the treatment of that is, is fluid, but actually the overall treatment for all of these things, in particular the cardiovascular changes that we've mentioned, is nutrition. And it's not until when you start feeding someone is often that we will find that electrolytes change. So the reassuring thing that people often say, well, the electrolytes are normal, has been common quotes when people have them catastrophically with eating disorders because they can be falsely reassuring. It's actually easy when you start feeding someone that electrolytes become the issue. Do we have to check everything, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, when a child is admitted with anorexia on the ward? Or is it part of the normal test that we should do at the beginning and then during the sort of refeeding regime? Yeah, so, you know, having said all that, I think a baseline of electrolytes and calcium, magnesium and phosphate are helpful because someone who's been chronically malnourished may have problems with all of those. I have to say that the human body is quite well designed to deal with starvation for the most part. All of our ancestors have probably been significantly starved at some point. So we're able to compensate for that and usually that will mean maintaining electrolytes. But it's important to have a baseline for a start to see if there are issues. But it, then as you say, as you're alluding to around refeeding syndrome, it's important to have the baseline to know where you're at. And what most guidelines would tell you, and most thought would be that if someone's got an electrolyte abnormality, particularly a significant one, then it's better to correct that before you start feeding because refeeding can alter things. Okay. Or as you start feeding at least. In the Junior Marcy Band, there is an interesting tool of assessing the muscle weakness. Yeah. And there's one called sit-up and one squat-stand test. Can yes. you explain to our listeners what these? Yeah, that, that's been around for some time. What you tend to find is that people who are malnourished, who've been starved, tend to have a proximal weakness. Essentially, it's a proxy for how underweight you are, really. So you will find that people who look very thin and got low muscle mass, if you ask them to squat over or stand up from from seating, it is more difficult to um, for them to do that because they're weak. Obviously, it's got its value, but to be honest, in terms of priorities for what you need to think about when someone's starved, you actually want to be reducing their activity to begin with. It's so it, it's, it's a sign, but it's probably not hugely helpful in my personal view. This was one of my sort of next questions we will discuss in a minute about sort of what exercise are they allowed to do but hmm. shall we discuss about where is the best place for us to look after these patients and what's the role of primary care so unfortunately and it's changing but unfortunately across the the world and in the United Kingdom, the setup for people with eating disorders and children and young people with eating disorders doesn't always work perfectly in terms of a venue to look after them. And one of the problems with that is that um, it's primarily considered 
a psychiatric disorder, which of course in classification it is, but as I said right at the beginning, a significant chunk of the group that we look after will also have medical complications. And the situation in the UK as it stands at the moment is it's not... There are a few venues where it's set up to deliver both. Um, if someone's acutely starved and someone is medically unwell because they're underweight, then of course I'm going to say that they need to be in a paediatric setting in the first instance because a number of other inpatient units that might specifically look after mental health would not necessarily be geared up for that. Some places can't do nasogastric feeding, for example. Some places can't do blood testing. And whilst it's been difficult because unfortunately for these young people they don't particularly fit exactly right into any different place acute paediatrics has to play its part and has been finding itself playing that part nationally and we know that from the reports that we're hearing around the country if a lot more children and people being admitted to paediatric wards i would argue that if someone has been diagnosed with an eating disorder or presents with an eating disorder and they're bradycardic and they've got low blood pressure and they are in in zones in marzipan then they need to be in a medical setting just as any other child who's got medical problems there are that said a number of children young people who are still underweight who are being managed in outpatients and eating disorder services and CAMS teams across the country or maybe inpatient in specific eating disorder units around the country but acute paediatrics does have its part to play if we find that people have acutely lost weight and that's probably where the biggest risk lies it's people who lose weight quickly and you know if, if you're medically that unwell you can't start therapy you can't you can't take over with therapy until physically they're better. I think this is an important take-home message for everyone. If a GP or any calls you about a child with anorexia that has, is bradycardic, has a low blood pressure and looks unwell, is cold, cannot do much physically, we need to admit this child, we cannot bounce them back, we just need to admit them like we would do with any other Yeah, I think, child. It's, I think it's important that um, that we advocate for children and we do the right thing for them. I mean, it, also, of course, we shouldn't shouldn't not move on without saying that it requires teamwork as well. We know that when children and young people, particularly ones who have challenging behaviours around their eating disorder, are admitted to medical wards, it can be extremely challenging, not just for the staff, but for the patient and their family. And getting that right can be really tricky. So what that requires is teamwork with mental health teams as well. I think we are seeing increasingly, because of the, the, the setting up of specialist eating disorder services around the country, that there are now teams who are able to provide liaison support towards. But I think, so it's about shifting away from who's, whose patient is this and who takes responsibility for this patient. Actually, at, at the time, it needs to be the best person able to do that. And if that is medical decompensation then I think that needs to be medical but it does of course need to be supported by people to, to help people do that. Just a brief question about or I don't know if it will be a brief answer as well but what is the view on compulsory admission and treatment? We know children or young, well it will be young adults might not want to be admitted. Do we have any legal framework to work with? That's a complex question. The role of um, involuntary detainment in eating disorders is a common piece to managing of people with eating disorders. And psychiatrists who work in that domain will um, be well equipped to support with that. I mean, largely speaking, in the UK, there's two bits of legislation that help and support families, children and professionals and uh, who with, with eating disorders or any mental health disorder. There's the Mental Health Act and then there's the Children's Act. The nuances between using those two can be challenging and tricky and I, rather than going into that here now, my suggestion would be if you're trying to navigate that system, it's really important that you engender the help of a psychiatrist that you have access to and also to legal teams. I mean, the, the, the important thing is about being prepared, isn't it? 
when we started to first manage sepsis more effectively, we recognised there's this sort of golden hour of when you're able to manage something. And to, you know, we, we practice, don't we, in APLS, and we practice how we manage resuscitations. In a sense, I think one when I hear around the country where people have had difficulties and challenges, it's often because people are taken by surprise that this patient arrives and it's difficult and challenging for them to manage. So I think it's also about you know knowing your local network, knowing your local teams, particularly your mental health teams if you're an acute paediatrician, knowing who they are so that when you do need to work together in a really challenging situation it's not a total surprise and at you know, midnight or one o'clock in the morning so that you've actually built those relationships up or at least know where they are. And I think also the other thing I hear from around the country that's helpful is when there has been an admission that may have been challenging and there may have been things that could have been done differently about having an after review, an informal one, with other colleagues to kind of think about how you might do it again next time. Scrambling with the Mental Health Act and, and the Children's Act at one o'clock in the morning or whatever is quite difficult. I think it's knowing who your people, your, who your go-tos are, just as knowing who your cardiology local person is if you've got the situation where you need to access them quickly. So I think it's about preparedness, knowing who they are and having the right help on board for those issues. If we admit, let's, check, let's say everything's nice and peaceful and we, we admit the young adult or the child on the unit, on the pediatric unit, what are the options? What do we do next? How do we feed this child? People worry a bit about refeeding syndrome, and people should worry about refeeding syndrome, but actually it's much more common is underfeeding syndrome. What tends to happen is children come into hospital, it's difficult to know what to do, people don't have the skill set to be able to sort of work with, people can recognise what's wrong, but being able to tackle it is very difficult. You know, actually starting feeding is really important. The marzipan guidelines are being reviewed and renewed. We should say that the, the recommended starting amount of feeding, which is in marzipans, underdoes it at the moment. So 1,200 calories would be a good starting point. Go, going up by 200 is what most people would recommend. But I think it's about starting some feeding. It can be enormously tricky. You need to get the help of people who know and work with eating disorders in your area to be able to help me do that. But, uh, but I think the, the important thing is, is being honest with the young people and their families about what it is that you are planning to do with a feeding plan. Be very clear about what the plan is. Also, I think you know sometimes we do need to use nasogastric tube feeding. And when you do need to use um, nasogastric tube feeding, it's important that it's not used in a, for the most part, not used as a sort of threat to somebody. In my experience, it's quite common for young people to just not feel able to eat the amount of food that you've been, you're asking them to eat and a nasogastric tube can be helpful for them when you've explained to them and I think framing it within the medical context that you're very unwell at the moment you're physically very unwell and we need to do this is, is helpful but about, I think about being clear to families and being clear to young people about what it is you're trying to do and why you're doing doing that there will be occasions of course where that just doesn't work and it's not possible and it gets very difficult but for the most part I think being clear and having a meal plan and, and having that planned and having your dietitian on board and, and and also being aware of what the risks are around refeeding syndrome. Shall we discuss about yeah. refeeding syndrome okay. if we're here? It's probably quite rare in terms of it being a significant lethal outcome. It's always something that you should watch for and I think where people tend to get into difficulties is where they just haven't thought about it or aren't aware of it. I think that's changed slightly. Certainly when we did the survey of um, trainees in the UK some years ago, it was less than a fifth were aware of what refeeding syndrome was. We can get that out now. Refeeding syndrome is what it says on the box. It's a syndrome which happens when you refeed somebody. And what happens if you've been starved over time is that you become deplete of phosphate. You also don't use carbohydrates very often to metabolise because you've 
used all your carbohydrates up and you've switched to different metabolic pathways. When you reintroduce carbohydrates into diet, then there's a shift back to, to that metabolism route and that can tend to use up electrolytes. It can also make your insulin rates um, levels go go up. The cardinal features of the electrolyte abnormalities, so low phosphate, low potassium, with low phosphate being the most common. And then the clinical um, impacts of that are cardiological and neurological. So people can will get edematous, they may have cardiac arrhythmias, and from a neurological point of view, they may, you know, the GCS may reduce and people have been known to have seizures. Obviously it'd be nice not to get to that point and, and actually regular biochemical monitoring and regular clinical monitoring can allow you to stop ending up in that situation. Historically people have known about refeeding syndrome for centuries, I mean even sort of when 0 AD and at the time when the Romans were in Judea people starved themselves and it was recognised that when people started feeding after a period of starvation some people got very ill and of course the the most notable tragic recognition was in the last century the end of the Second World War when the concentration camps were liberated and people started to recognise that when you started to refeed people who'd been starved significantly that they had issues around refeeding syndrome and so it's not just an anorexia specific phenomena it happens whenever you refeed somebody and it should be something we always think about in children so children have been you know on ITU and may have not be fed children who have been starved with inflammatory bowel disease and are not being absorbing so those those kind of children but the point is to look out clinically and biochemically on a regular basis um, refeeding syndrome will most commonly happen at 48 to 72 hours after you start refeeding somebody but can happen for up to two weeks but most commonly will happen within the first five days so that's why most guidelines will tell you to regularly check electrolytes for those five days and clinically monitor patients. The key being that if refeeding syndrome develops and we don't have a stack of evidence about how you manage refeeding syndrome surprisingly is that you stop increasing the calories at that point and compensate for the electrolytes and get the electrolytes back to normal before going up is the basic theory for managing refeeding syndrome. What activities can these children do? Are they supposed to have complete bed rest once admitted on a paediatric ward or are they allowed to do some form of physical activity? So if, you, so if you go across the world to different units that manage people with eating disorders in a sort of specialist sense, to medical wards that may be very proficient at, work, at managing people with eating disorders that you find in the States, for example, where people do it frequently, to people in this country, to Australia, anywhere. There's a huge variety in the protocols that people put in place for managing patients around physical activity. I don't have strong feelings on it because I also see it through two lenses. I see it firstly through the lens of physical risk and we'll come to that in a second because that's obviously the important thing because you want to be able to manage a patient without them having physical risk that's then going to have consequences. But the second risk is that is the psychological distress that's associated with an eating disorder and being on a ward. So that's not just specific to someone with an eating disorder. Any child or young person is on a ward, it's a strange environment to be in. And if you're wanting to work with somebody and you wanted to limit their psychological distress, then clearly keeping someone bedbound and pushing them around in a wheelchair um, instead of allowing them to walk to the toilet and, and that sort of thing. And whether they might be necessary from a physical point of view in some cases, they also have psychological implications for, for people as well. So I think it's about, because that's 
my view on most things is about, about being pragmatic about it, about what you have to do. I think if someone's got significant postural hypotension, you know, where the systolic drops from 10 to 15 and is symptomatic when they stand up, I think in those patients, as you would for any patient in that situation, you have to be very careful about their mobilising. And it might be that in that situation, being in a wheelchair is valuable. We also need to be honest about the fact that there are some young people who, when they have an eating disorder, will have, because it's a psychiatric condition, will have powerful urges to have compensatory behaviours like exercise and vomiting. And so in those situations, bathroom use can be tricky and might sometimes need negotiation that that's supervised in a, as much of a, a way as possible to be careful about, you know, the giving people dignity on, on the ward. I don't think it's one case fits all. I think personally, and people may well disagree with me, I think personally, if you're going to have those kind of limitations on someone, you need to be very clear about why it is. Clearly, if someone's pacing up and down the ward and doing lots of exercise, standing a lot, which is quite common, that is using up energy. And of course, if you're trying to refeed a patient, if you're trying to increase the calories because someone's so medically compromised, someone burning off energy in the same way can is, is harmful. So I think you have to um, do a, a careful balance. But again, it's all about working as a team. So it's a bit about, you know, the nursing staff and the doctors and the mental health teams that you have at your access to discuss about what, what battles are worth fighting about right now because this is really difficult. What do we want to do to make this work for everybody? Also being consistent because there's nothing worse than keep changing and a new shift comes on and someone's allowed something different. I think it's very clear with people with eating disorders and for their families and for the teams that you have a plan and you stick to it. But the formulation of that plan needs to be firstly guided around medical risk. How can we support support the family of a young adult is are there any charities or associations that we can sort of guide them to if you have any websites or any leaflets i'd, I'd be more than happy to link them because yeah, we can put a link onto that i think the most important things for families is to recognize that there is data that um, suggests that most of the time when people go for medical help with their child or adolescent they know it's an eating disorder. They may may not know explicitly what it is, but most people in the general population know enough about it, probably sometimes more than health professionals when they first go for help. The initial urge that many of us have about not having the confidence to bring it up as an issue, which can stop us behaving or stop us being able to do what we need to do for a patient, can be limited by our concern about how it's going to feel to families but I think what we know is that families appreciate honesty they often know they probably already thought it was an eating disorder um, I think be honest about things you know if you don't know I, I don't know what the process for getting an assessment around an eating disorder is um, I'm going to speak to somebody it's pretty much the same stuff that you would do for any condition but families like you to be honest families like you to be supportive and, and also an understanding that families have probably been living with this usually for three to six months before someone presents with an eating disorder there have been issues at home um, about for a child or a young person in terms of losing weight and behaviours that probably started off entirely innocently and expectedly like being a bit more healthy or just missing a meal or two and, and things creep up on people so so that's that's one of the keys, being honest. But the other thing that's really important is that families, when they have a young person or a child with a mental health disorder, whether it be anorexia or any other, there's a huge amount of stigma in the population that they carry with them and a great amount of shame. So lots of families feel that they caused this for some reason. They may have gone for a run with their daughter one afternoon or they, they may have started to facilitate the healthy eating because they are caring parents and wanted to do the best for their children. So I think, you know, like all of us with mental health um, when it comes to mental health, I think for all of us, it's about dealing with that stigma and appreciating that families would have that. Now, you don't have to tiptoe around it, but it's really important that families are not 
made to be to to feel like they're to blame because the evidence base for getting someone better from a psychological perspective for an eating disorder is based around family treatment so families actually make eating disorders better if they get the message that they've made it or created it that can be sometimes really quite disabled avoiding blame and those frustrations that come out of us all all the time when we're managing a challenging patient because that's just the way we are and that is challenging is not to project that onto families because that does happen from time to time thank you so much for giving us all this information it was extremely useful and i think all the trainees will appreciate this huge important information that we received now regarding eating disorders if there's anything else that you'd like to add i'll be more than happy to sort of record another podcast at a different time if not thank you so much i'll let you continue your day i'm sure you're extremely busy on this unit and i'll see you next time thank you very much thank you bye thank you for staying with us until the end The link to the Junior Marzipan is in the description box. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know if you have any ideas of themes that could be discussed in the next episodes. If you prefer to listen to us in an app, you can search for Pediatric Commuter in the podcast app on iPhones or Podbean or Google Podcasts for Android-operated phones. Hit the subscribe button and don't forget to rate us. See you soon!